Welcome to the Bonhoeffer Podcast, a podcast about the life, theology, and practice of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm your host, Corey Tuttle, and my guest today is Dr. Philip Ziegler. Dr. Ziegler is the professor of Christian dogmatics at King's College at the University of Aberdeen. He's also the co-editor of the Oxford Handbook of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dr. Ziegler, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having, having me on the show. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this for a while. Big big fan of your work, and it's been really helpful for mine. So, so I appreciate you taking the time. That's um, very kind. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Uh, so how, what we normally do is we start off the podcast uh, with a sort of get-to-know-you section. Um, so I was just wondering if you could tell me, how did you discover Bonhoeffer? Yeah, that's interesting. I um, I. I think I probably read Bonhoeffer for the first time as an undergraduate at the University of Toronto, where I've uh, finished up my uh, my under, undergraduate studies. Um, I, t- I took a course in my final year there called something like Spiritual Classics or something, and it, it was a sort of reading list of primary texts of um, uh, works like um, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress and uh, Teresa of Avila's uh, uh, Spiritual Castle, these kinds of things. And on that list was uh, Bonhoeffer's Discipleship. And um, I I don't re- remember it making a particular impression on me, interestingly enough, um, as part of the course. I, th- I think I wrote my paper on the Bunyan. Um, but then in seminary, also in Toronto, I, uh, at Emmanuel College, where I studied uh, for the ministry, we, uh, we read as a sort of reading group, seminary and reading group life together at some point. Um, And we had a chance in that context to correspond with one of Bonhoeffer's Finkenwalde students, a man named Paul Busing, who had immigrated to Canada uh, in the late 1940s and was living in retirement still at that point in Ottawa. And uh, I never got to meet him. He passed away before I met him. But um, uh, his his wife, Erica, who was also had sat classes with Bonhoeffer, um, became a kind of correspondent of mine. And and uh, as my own interest in Bonhoeffer grew, um, it was it was great fun and very, very enjoyable to be able to, to connect and to speak with her as someone who knew him um, in that way. Um, I guess in terms of my, my own sort of academic interest, um, the, the, the first work on Bonhoeffer that I did at any real length was in my PhD program um, at t- Toronto on Bonhoeffer's ethics. Um, we had to take a required course in ethics, and the year that I took it was taught by um, one of the Jesuit professors there, and um, uh, was taught in a largely kind of Roman Catholic uh, style, the approach to teaching ethics um, uh, from the Jesuit perspective. And when we met with the professor to talk about course papers, I remember him saying, Ziegler, you're a kind of Protestant. I said, yes. <laughs> said, this course, this won't, this won't have been very good for you. I said, no, no, that's not... It, not at all. I've enjoyed everything. It's been great fun learning um, from this other perspective. He said, well, you should do your paper on something Protestant. And I, I obviously looked nonplussed. I didn't know what that would mean uh, or what, what that might involve. And so he, he, he turned around to his bookshelf and he pulled off a couple of things. And among them was the, the, the little black paperback Macmillan edition of Bonhoeffer's Ethics, um, which he said, oh, you this would make a good topic for your paper. So I, I remember I took it downstairs to the library uh, at Regis College there in Toronto, uh, and I opened up the first page. And that edition is, you'll know, the ethics has been printed in different kinds of configurations at different times. In that edition, the first 
text is the love of God and the disintegration of the world. And so the opening lines of that uh, that particular chapter were, were uh, it seems as though the establishment of the knowledge of good and evil is the basic task of all ethics. Punct. Um, the first task of Christian ethics is the is the the destruction of this knowledge. And I, and I thought, wow, that's something we haven't heard in this class. I, I was so kind of thrown by how different an approach this was to the topic that I really got hooked, and that there's sort of been no going back, I suppose. Wow. Yeah, I, I have a similar experience. Um, I'm doing my, my thesis on Bonhoeffer on autonomy, and I'm kind of walking through his understanding of the biblical narrative. And I, I do have the, the volume six of the ethics, um, but I do have, I think, the touchstone version or I have some sure. other version. And I think that it starts out with that as well, because I remember opening it up and having the same experience. <laughs> I have I've been a Christian for a while. Um, this is what, six years of uh, post high school uh, study of the Bible, of theology. And then this is the first time I've this thought has ever crossed my mind that, that using the knowledge of good and evil might not be what was supposed to happen. <laughs> Yeah, there was something kind of deeply, not just counterintuitive, but but um, sort, of, sort of deeply angular about that I, that idea, and it was so puzzling that um, it just kind of called out for study. So I did write the paper, as it turns out, on Bonhoeffer's ethics. I have no idea what I wrote about now. I can't remember, uh, but I I remember being so intrigued by the the sort of self consciously theological approach and self consciously Protestant approach uh, to to the topic. Um, and just how distinctive it was from the kinds of other ways of thinking about Christian ethics that we had been exploring in the class. So, yeah, a, mm. really a riveting kind of encounter. Well, that's great. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, what I was hoping that we could do is get into your work with the Oxford Handbook. Sure. I, I, my previous episode, I had Dr. Mike Mawson on, and he was great. We, we mostly talked about um, his book, Christ Existing as Community. Um, but since he was a co-editor, I did ask him for a little intro piece on uh, on this work, um, but I figured I would, because he had written such, he wrote, wrote the book on Bonhoeffer's ecclesiology, I figured, well, let's cover that, and then I'll see if I can get someone, and then he's like, you should ask, you should ask Phil to come on, and I was like, oh, oh yeah, well, perfect, and so I reached out to you, and you're, you're gracious enough to come on, um, but yeah, I was, I'm excited about this. I'm excited to, to get working through this with you. Um, so I'll ask you, I asked him some similar questions, but just for anyone who had, has not listened to that episode, how did, uh, how does a project like this come together? Yeah, well, I'll try not to falsify anything that <laughs> I told you. I'm sure whatever he said is exactly right. We, um, we, he and I, we were colleagues here in Aberdeen. He's, he's recently taken a, a post in Sydney now in Australia, so we're we're sorry not to have him here um, in our department. But Mike and I taught here together for for a number of years, um, and uh, we had this shared interest in Bonhoeffer and uh, and also shared intuitions about how how best to think about um, reading Bonhoeffer and the kinds of of uh, themes that interested us both in Bonhoeffer's work were were uh, notably overlapping. So it was a great kind of colleague. Um, and at some point, I'm not sure when, several years ago now, 2014 perhaps, we um, we had a conversation about whether or not it wouldn't be time, uh, a kind of apt time for um, the kind of project that these Oxford handbooks represent. You know, they're they're intended to be a kind of stock taking exercise, a chance to consolidate a moment in the advancement of scholarship on a certain theme or figure. Um, 
And it's been a long time since we've had had anything at all like that with Bonhoeffer. Um, the the sort of analogous project might be the mid 1990s. There was a Cambridge Companion done uh, to Bonhoeffer. Um, those companions are much smaller in scale and um, and in many ways different in kind. But 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 even if that were an analogous kind kind of project, we're 20 years on from that. Point. Um, and in those 20 years, we've seen the completion of the German edition of the uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer work and the English translation as well. Um, and um, not least because of the impact of the translation project and the production of, the, of that, um, that edition, the field of Bonhoeffer studies has really kind of changed. Um, so the, the mere existence of those volumes with all of that material uh, readily accessible now for readers um, has has really shifted the way that one offers being read and understood um, and has sparked I, I think a new kind of generation of scholarship so we were interested to think that at the moment sort of as the critical edition um, has has come into being and is beginning to have its impact that, that there's a it's, it's it's a good occasion to ask the question about where we are with the study of Bonhoeffer and what kinds of tasks and directions for future study there there might well be opening up for us. So that's kind of the impetus behind the project as a whole. Um, I think we also, Mike and I also had had a thought that one of the benefits of the of the works is to show that um, well, of course, Bonhoeffer is still the theologian who, whose central preoccupations are those which have been well acknowledged for a long time. It, uh, the doctrine of the church, Christology, mm-hmm. ethics. Yes, of course. Um, nevertheless, there's also in the corpus wide-ranging material on all kinds of other theological topics, um, which we don't often associate with Bonhoeffer. We're going to talk about God, one of them, perhaps here to mm-hmm. the minute. Um, so we wanted the, the handbook also to give us an occasion to ask scholars to write um, introductory kind of exploratory chapters on topics that we don't usually associate with Bonhoeffer. Um, and, and so part two of the book in in particular, it's called Theology and Doctrine, has a range of just loci, scripture, God, Christology, spirit, creation, anthropology, what, sin and salvation, ecclesiology, the Christian life, and eschatology, so kind of textbook range of coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we asked the scholars who wrote for us in that section to sort of uh, give us an account of what there is in one offer on the doctrine of the spirit, or on creation, or, or what have you. Um, and that part of the book I, I'm, I'm particularly pleased with. Uh, I, I, I think all of it's come up very, very well. But that to try to sort of um, represent the, something of the of the breadth of Bonhoeffer's theological thinking across sort of the range of of doctrines was part of what we were keen that that the handbook uh, do. Mm-hmm. This section I think is part and parcel of that. Um, it also, of course, does a kind of uh, a sur- survey in part one of. Bonhoeffer's life and the shifting context within which he worked. We've got some very fine historians who have written for us in that context. There's a sort of treatment of Bonhoeffer's ethics uh, and his account of uh, the public activity of the Christian in part three, which again, sort of core to our thinking about Bonhoeffer. Um, The last two sections are also quite interesting. I think part four, thinking after Bonhoeffer, series of papers exploring kind of possible encounters that Bonhoeffer never sort of took up or could have taken up um, some kind of account of his influence in our think, thinking about um, uh, the Christian faith in in conversation in conversations that he himself made out of stage, like, for example, Bonhoeffer's conversation with contemporary 
philosophy or with uh, liberation struggles in South Africa or what have you, feminist mm-hmm. theology, mm-hmm. those kinds of things. So lots of interesting creative, constructive thinking going on there. And then the final part of the handbook, three short, shorter essays on sort of uh, working with Bonhoeffer as a as a resource. So what are the texts? The, the history of the text is complicated. Um, and the, while the works edition sort of delivers a working body of texts in a certain kind of way, the story of all the previous editions and how they're related to what's in the works is 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 uh, is very interesting and important to understand. So we've got essays on that. Um, we've got essays on the history of writing Bonhoeffer's life. Uh, John DeGrucci wrote us a, a tight little essay surveying some of the um, both older and more recent biographies, some of which has been quite contested. So it's quite a lively piece of writing there. Um, and then Stephen Haynes has a nice piece on the reception history of Bonhoeffer, he's written, of course, at length about that. Here we have a, have a very terse sort of digest of the some of the, the more kind of poignant present debates about Bonhoeffer's perception, uh, uh, writing, uh, in his case, from a particular kind of American perspective as well. So yeah, so the book is quite wide-ranging, so there's lots in it for people. Um, it's intended as a handbook, so it's the kind of thing we're not really expecting someone to sit down and read from beginning to end, though you'd be welcome to do that. Um, but the but the chapters we hope will be useful for students and other readers who are who are trying to take themselves to school on certain aspects of Bonhoeffer's work uh, in, in classes or personal study and who would find it helpful to get some kind of fundamental sort of orientation towards uh, uh, the way that Bonhoeffer thinks about something or a certain stage in Bonhoeffer's life or his approach to ethics or what have you. So, yeah, we were grateful to everyone who contributed. You know, there are thir- thir- 32 chapters, 32 authors. Mm-hmm. Um, Lots of, of open-handed generosity amongst those who, who were willing to put time and energy into writing and researching the papers. So we're grateful to everybody who contributed. Yeah, yeah. It's I mean, it, it's such a great resource. I found myself, you know, if I have a question as I'm, I'm writing my thesis, like I just flip through, find a, <laughs> the table of contents and I'm like, oh, there's probably something on that there. Um, and it's just a great resource. Um, you mentioned that there's, there's so many authors, and specifically, you mentioned with the sort of the doctrinal section, how there's some sections, like we'll get to with the God uh, God chapter, where it's not clearly fleshed out. You sort of have to go searching for it. Um, with that being the case, uh, how do you... Uh, it, it seems like Stephen Haynes is a given for the reception chapter. Um, but how, how are chapters like, let's say, yours on God or... or um, Dr. Mawson's on, I think it's the, the Bible or biblical interpretation. Um, how are those sort of things decided when uh, when there's not necessarily, I guess, a go-to? Stephen Haynes is the guy when it comes to uh, reception, uh, but with these sort of uh, hard-to-trace categories, um, how did you guys decide the, uh, the chapters? Yeah, um, sort of, I'm sure we had a mixed economy approach. So sometimes, as you say, there are people who we associate with certain kinds of topics or certain questions, either in Bonhoeffer or more generally, mm-hmm. um, who we, we were pleased to invite to write pieces. Um, in some cases, we were just keen to have sort of so certain individuals involved in the project. We didn't necessarily um, uh, uh, know at the beginning which of the chapters we wanted them to write, but we were just keen to engage them. Um, in some cases, we 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 sent um, folks um, some indication of well here we thought perhaps you might be interested in writing A B C D or E hmm. um, is there anything else in the table of contents that might be of interest um, 
I'm really pleased with the way some of those have come out. Um, uh, again, as as I said, folks were very gen- kind of generous in their willingness to engage with the project, um, and I I think lots of people found that that writing the chapters was um, a valuable exercise for them in their own th- th- thinking about Bonhoeffer. I mean, mm-hmm. I, that was certain 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 case in my case. I know Mike um, found it the same way in in doing the work on on the doctrine of scripture that um he he learned a great deal from the from the, the exercise and the, the discipline of taking himself to school with the corpus and trying to organize what there was to say about Bonhoeffer's relationship to the bible you know in in the compass of uh, of of an individual chapter um, that was certainly true for me as well with the doctrine of god chapter two so yeah um uh, there's a lot of expertise on the ground here, um, deployed mm-hmm. not not all of it directly on topics where where we would have already associated someone with those themes, but sometimes that's that's certainly true. I mean, you you mentioned S- S- Stephen Hayes, um, Reggie Williams wrote for us on Bonhoeffer and Race, which again is you know, kind of playing t- to a strength of his, which which he's already written and published about. We have a piece by Clifford Green in the volume on Bonhoeffer's peace. Um, witness and ethic, which again has been one of his sort of lifelong sort of interest in Bonhoeffer. So there were people who we played just to, to uh, extent strengths that were well known, mm-hmm. but there were other cases. Um, Rob Levin and Hans Ulrich and Jerry McKenney wrote three essays on the ethics, sort of overlapping pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, and there we were keen to get just three very different kinds of ethicists who all in some way have worked with Bonhoeffer in their own work to come at the ethics again and to think, what does this look like uh, as, as a contribution to theological ethics now? So the, those three chapters kind of need to be read as a group. But um, Jeremy Kenny, for instance, I don't know that he's ever written at length on Bonhoeffer before he wrote for us here. Hmm. Uh, so uh, in some cases, we drew people who were who who we wanted to sort of encourage to think about Bonhoeffer out out loud, not not for the first time and uh, uh, entirety, but perhaps for the first time at length. Um, and I think those chapters have worked out well for us as well. Excellent! Wow, thank you so much for that. Um, so what we'll do, I figure we can jump right into your chapter, as you mentioned. Uh, God, the doctrine of God is not something that is that Bonhoeffer has dealt with extensively in his work, but. It's there. Uh, you just might have to go looking for it for a little bit. You write in your, your chapter that Bonhoeffer's central concern is the reality of di- divine primaity. Um, could you explain what divine primaity is? Sure, sure, sure. So, yeah, I reached for a couple of kind of uh, terms of art in the essay to help organize the the analysis. And one... One of them, as you say, is is this notion of divine promeity. Um, uh, the other one, I guess, divine alterity. Um, so, but the notion of promeity, um, Bonhoeffer himself uses it. So it's a term taken up from his own writing, though it has a longer history, um, especially in Lutheran theology, but not exclusively. So, um, it's 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 a term. It's a kind of uh, constructed term in English. Uh, mm-hmm. It it. As the ity suggests, it's a Latinate kind of term, and it and it simply takes two words, pro may, and makes them a thing. So, um, pro for towards uh, may me. Sometimes you'll get the phrase pro nobis, uh, and you'll sometimes find in te- technical theological writing people talking about pro nobicity, um, the same idea there. The um, uh, pro maity, pro nobicity, the idea that. Um, uh, that that in this case God is 
for me, for us, for you, that God is for the creature. Um, for Bonhoeffer, that idea is uh, fundamental. It's fun fundamental to what he takes the gospel to be about, uh, and it becomes fundamental to the way he wants to think about God more generally. Yeah, um, there are particular places in the work where where the term comes to the fore. It's often used quite a bit in the discussion in the Christology lectures. There's a long discussion of, of the way that Christ, and therefore also God, is fundamentally for me, for us. Um, but, but the term itself, but also its logic, uh, is at work, uh, I think, throughout the corpus. Hmm. Um, so I found it a very helpful sort of te technical term on, on which to hang a good amount of, of, of the analysis of his th thinking about God. Definitely. Yeah. I, oh, that's what I, I felt when I was reading it. I was like, what is this word? And then about a sentence later, you, you describe it as God being for us. And, and I thought, oh, man, that's definitely Bonhoeffer. That's everywhere. Um, the yeah. uh, Can yeah. I have you define divine alterity as well? Sure. Yeah. There, there again, it's a kind of Latinate form. Again, the ITY gives it away. Alter, um, people will recognize the the, the root, um, simply a word that means other, right? So um, in a lot of contemporary writing about God, perhaps more so on the philosophical theology side than other uh, um, fields of study, uh, the talk about divine alterity, talk about otherness, right, um, is an important kind of idea. So for Bonhoeffer, what I wanted to suggest in the, in the chapter is that um, intrinsic to his thinking about the, the nature of divine being for us, divine promeity, um, is an idea of divine transcendence. So the language of alterity in the chapter keeps company with talk about divine transcendence. Um, and uh, it's a way of picking out the role that transcendence plays in thinking about how, Bar uh, how, Bonhoeffer, sorry, how Bonhoeffer understands grace. Um, so essentially, you can think of it like this. Um, Divine promedi and divine alterity, their proper combination and understanding of their relationship is uh, the way that Bonhoeffer thinks we have to think about what it means for God to be gracious. So uh, another way to think about his primary theme, I think, is that he's, he's chiefly interested in the graciousness of God. Mm -hmm. um, when he works through those ideas, he, he, he thinks of them. Uh, he thinks of grace in terms of, of divine being for us, and then because it's divine being for us, it's also trans transcendent. Uh, it has a it has a kind the kind of freedom which is appropriate to God, um, and uh, alterity is one of the ways in which you can kind of put a name on that that freedom that difference between God and not God, um, across which divine mercy divine love kind of moves. Perfect. And you, in, in your chapter, you uh, walk through three locations of where promeity and alterity uh, are really present in Bonhoeffer's works, that being uh, acted being his Christology lectures and letters and papers. So I was hoping that we could just walk through each of those and, and label where, where we see promeity and uh, alterity present in those works. So let's start with act and being. How are they present in act and being? Yeah, so... Act in Being is a book about revelation. Uh, that's that's the stated topic. And so Paul offers there thinking out loud and in conversation with a range of authors of philosophical and theological about um, uh, the, the way in which we need to think about how we come to know and speak about God. Uh, so that's his question. In, in that context, um, he leans heavily on, on the notion of revelation itself. Um, and in thinking about 
Revelation uh, as he works his way through the various kinds of options um, which he wants to entertain, but then finally uh, move beyond. He ends up at a place where he wants to say um, that God in Christ reveals God's self to the human being, and that that happens as an act of radical self-giving, Romani, and as an act of tr transcendent freedom. And so there's this famous passage in uh, Act and Being where, um, having rehearsed the way that Karl Barth thinks about d d divine freedom, the writing in the 1920s, Barth's sort of strong account of the kind of radical otherness of God, uh, which Bonhoeffer describes as sort of actualist and formal in its content. He wants to, to say, well, actually, if we think beyond Bart here, we want to say something like what Bart wants to say, but we want to say something more. We want to say that, and the phrase runs something like, God is not finally free from us, but free for us. And that, that the idea of God's freedom for us, God's freedom for um, creatures, is Christologically substantiated the understanding of divine freedom. So that's what, that's uh, interestingly, divine freedom there understood in terms of divine uh, mercy or love, right, being for us. So what it means for God to be free is it concretely uh, known in Christ is that God is for us. So that book, although it's not about sort of God as such, because it's about revelation, the basic logic of re revelation um, uh, proves to be the same logic of divine salvation, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so the way that God moves towards um, the creature uh, in the creature's sort of situation of sinfulness, which includes kind of resistance to the knowledge of God, um, that movement is described in terms of, uh, on one hand, divine freedom, so transcendence, uh, and that transcendence is specified fundamentally for Bonhoeffer by pro right, being for us. So God is free for us. Um, and why why do we know that, or how do we know that? We know that because that's the shape that divine action takes in Christ. So he's thinking that book is is a good indication of, of the direction of travel. Right? We're going to be thinking about these themes about God, pro and alterity. We're going to be thinking about them exclusively with reference to Christ. Right? That's going to be the, the sort of source of all Bonhoeffer's sort of interest, and um, it'll be Christological themes which discipline his talk about God from this point through the rest of the corpus. Mm, okay, yeah. Um, and where do they show up in the uh, the Christology lectures? Yeah, so here you mentioned uh, these lectures uh, at an earlier point in the conversation already. The, they're um, jumping forward into the early 1930s. These are lectures that Bonhoeffer gave at the University in Berlin during his short time as a sort of lecturer on the academic staff there. They, uh, they, they, they do a whole variety of things, these lectures, but one of the things they do is they give us an, an indication of some of Bonhoeffer's sort of preoccupying themes um, in his own thinking about the figure of Christ. And uh, at the heart of those lectures is an account of perhaps unsurprisingly, divine promeity. So um, it comes out first as a way of describing uh, Jesus Christ as the one who is for us. So, um, and Bonhoeffer here does some interesting things. He wants, he wants to say that that's the personal structure, sort of sometimes you'll call it the ontological reality of the person of Christ. So it's not that Christ is, and then is maybe for us, or not. Right? But what, what Bonhoeffer wants to say is, is that ingredient in Christ's being is his being for us. Right? So it's not sort of two steps, but one mm -hmm. thing. 
So uh, in Christ's very being is this uh, fundamental orientation to be for another. Um, that sounds a lot like love, and you wouldn't be wrong to gloss it like that at all, right? So, so ingredient in Christ's very being is love. And then because of the way that Bonhoeffer thinks as a Lutheran about the, the identification of God with the activity of Christ, um, what he says about Christ here is extensible. So uh, extensible to talk about God. So to say that Christ is fundamentally for us warrants, as he goes on to explain it, talk about God as fundamentally for us. So pro may again. Um, so here, um, the importance of both uh, the, the way that Bonhoeffer thinks about God. We, we think about God Christianly, he says, when, when we think about what God uh, who God is and what God is doing in Jesus Christ. So the Christological concentration here comes to, to the fore. And then what we think about God, uh, when we think about God in that way, is that we, we, we have an encounter with a God who is fundamentally for us, uh, who is sort of with emphasis for us. So that theme comes right to, to the front there. Um, it's a very... Uh, it's interesting, his, his, his exclusive interest, you want to talk in sort of Lutheran terms, Lutherans will sometimes differentiate between um, the revealed God and the hidden God, sort of the Deus Revelatus and the Deus Absconditus. And, and uh, here, one of the things that, that you find is Bonhoeffer pulling on that tradition and s stressing that Christian talk of God is, is really exclusively interested in talking about the Deus Revelatus. So God as we meet God in the economy of salvation, and, and that means sort of Christologically concretized. Right? There's lots of other things that one might speculate about the God who's hidden. Bonhoeffer's not, not interested in any of that. Right? Hmm. So he has a very, his, the f focus of his interest in the doctrine of God is very much riveted to the talk about the God in the divine revelation that is Christ. Wow. <laughs> that's so good um the uh so let's jump into the last one um how sure. are how are they present in letters and papers yeah now you I mean, you might think that the letters and papers would would be a place where there's going to be almost nothing said about god given the way that we often think about the letters and papers that's the place where you know bonifer the the proto death of god theologian is mm -hmm. sort of working out his his uh uh solitary struggles with the radical challenge of modernity to, to faith uh, in general and to Christian faith in p particular. What's striking about the letters and papers is how much God talk there is, actually, um, and how, in many ways, it keeps very close company with the kinds of themes that we've just been talking about from the earlier work, Acton being, an, and also the kinds of things which we saw discussed in the Christology lectures. So, for instance, um, there's the famous discussion about uh, God uh, being sort of pushed to out to the margins by um, the development of modern human self-reflection, uh, modern human autonomy sort of means that we less and less need God as a sort of what hypothesis to solve puzzles that we can't solve anymore. The God of the gaps, the God at the margins, the, he, he mentions at some point the idea of that sort of Renaissance theatrical God who, uh, the, the deus ex machina, who's dropped from the ceiling in the last act of the play to resolve all the problems that there's no way the playwright could resolve otherwise, right? You know, God's the one who could sort this mess out. Mm -hmm. So Bonhoeffer's suggestion in the letters of papers for prison, and he's writing in 1944 to Betke, is that that kind of God, the God we need, the necessary God to, to, to make metaphysical sense of our world, to make psychological sense of our lives, uh, uh, to guarantee social order and stability, the God who's necessary, 
that God is the God that modernity is calling into question fundamentally. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, intriguingly, Bonhoeffer uh, welcomes that. Um, I think his basic posture is to the extent that Christians have entangled their understanding of the God of the gospel with that kind of necessary metaphysical, psychological, sociological deity, that's been the worst for Christianity. So that this sort of um, ascesis, intellectual ascesis, uh, is a welcome thing. It it might not look like that at first blush, but... Uh, in Bonhoeffer's theological reflection, it's a welcome thing. Um, the, the 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 distinction, as he says, between God and God, sort of in quotation marks, um, is a great actual gift to the church that the the challenge of modernity brings. So, what he's interested then is is in thinking in the wake of that about the God who is. Uh, and I picked up the language from Eberhard Jungel in the chapter because I think it does it. It picks it out Bonhoeffer's thoughts so well. The God who's more than necessary, right? That the God who remains on the other side of the loss of the necessary God, um, the God of the gaps, the Deus Ex Machina, the God who remains on the other side of that is a God who is not necessary, i.e., not entangled as a sort of causal uh, cog in a wheel of metaphysical or psychological explanation, but rather the God who only relates to the to to the world of creaturely life graciously which means freely, transcendently, um, and so on. And that God is, uh, Eberhard Jungel's phrase, more than necessary. Mm-hmm. It's a quirky kind of idea, but you can see what he means. Not less than necessary, right? not unnecessary, but more than necessary. Right? It's a kind of, grace means that God relates to the world in a kind of surplus, always, a kind of freedom of, 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 of divine overflow. Right, always in grace, always in freedom, always in love, never in necessity. And I think that that thought is actually at the heart of Bonhoeffer's wrestling with with God in the prison letters. The other thing you see is the continued interest in in the promaity. So you'll know, and your listeners will know too, the phrases from the letters and papers from prison: Jesus Christ, the man for others. Mm-hmm. This idea in thinking about the church, that the church sort of in the wake of the destruction of Europe in the war uh, will have to learn to be the church that exists for others or not at all. That language of existence for others, both Christological and ecclesiological, is, a, is an obvious echo of the Promaity notion, right? That, that uh, for God to be God is to be for us. Likewise, the man Jesus is the one who is who is for others, not is and then may or may not be for others, but is kind of uh, personally, his personal structure is to be for others. Likewise, Bonhoeffer's suggestion is the church is a kind of echo in or participation in that uh, true humanity of Christ also is for others. Again, it's not like the church has a choice, right? That it, well, <laughs> should we be for others or not for others, right? To be the church is to be for others. That's Bonhoeffer's suggestion. So you, you can see how this notion of promedi it runs out from the doctrine of God uh, through his Christology and, and into his late thinking about the church as well. So uh, the importance of the idea and the fruitfulness of it seems is well attested by those sections in the in the letters and papers from prison where those themes, uh, Christ the man for others, um, the church, the church for others, uh, come to the fore. Hmm. Wow, that's so helpful. Um, yeah, I mean, you mentioned that it, it, it's not very clearly laid out as far as a clear doctrine of God, right away, he doesn't have a chapter on the doctrine of God. But throughout all of it, you clearly see his understanding of 
uh, how revelation works and how salvation works and how uh, the church works out of that salvation all in the same function of promeity and, and alterity. So, so thank you yeah. so much for writing this. No, you're, you're quite right that, that what there isn't in Bonhoeffer, I mean, people who, 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 who want to go and sort of find out what Bonhoeffer thinks about the doctrine of God, and they look for where's the chapter where, or, the, or, the, or the section of the, uh, of the developed work where, where he, he sort of speaks directly to the kinds of things that typically make up a doctrine of God, you know, an account of uh, our arguments for or against divine existence, um, thinking about divine attributes and their interrelation, um, uh, a worked out doctrine of the Trinity, the kinds of things which you would regularly encounter in other people's writings, um, that those things aren't to be found in, mm-hmm. in his work. That's partially um, a function of the way that he thinks about the priority of, of, the, of God in the economy, so that um, the Christological is the place where um, one one encounters and then thinks about God, and that that the tethering of Christian thinking to um, uh, the outworking of divine grace in Christ means, in a way, that the doctrine of God, in these other modes, divine attributes, divine existence, even Trinity, um, are sort of secondary, derived, reflexive kinds of doctrines. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, yes, of course, they're there to be seen, um, and they do work, but they, but they never are for Bonhoeffer sort of the object of independent reflection. Right? That's what there's no sort of uh, separate treatment of divine attributes, for instance. You get lots of God talk where God is, you know, where things are predicated of God, of mm-hmm. course. So, so you get you you get a kind of operational account of divine attributes, but what you don't get is a d- direct discussion of them. I think there's something. I think Bonhoeffer is the- theological kind of constitution it would be too much to say that he's allergic to those things but I think he certainly has a kind of hesitancy towards that kind of of direct discourse about God uh, uh, precisely because of his the way in which he wants to rivet his thinking Christologically so that's that's perhaps kind of point point one um, and that's that's a reflection again of, the, of his interest in, in the exclusive well, the exclusive Christian interest in the Deus Revelatus, right? God known in the divine self-revelation. Um, uh, that I think is what kind of frames his 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 fundamental interest and approach to the doctrine of God as such. Um, Bart has these these ways of talking about different styles of doing theology. One of the distinctions he makes is is between regular and irregular dogmatics. Um, Regular dogmatics—the kind of thing that I suppose Bart himself is doing in, say, the massive exercise of the Church dogmatics—or the kind of thing you you might associate with, say, Calvin's Institutes or Aquinas's Summa uh, projects, whose whose uh, whose fundamental commitment is to do justice to the whole, right? And and the interrelations of all the various bits of Christian teaching from across the scope of of Christian faith and belief. Um, that theologians who are working in that vein are are pursuing what Bart calls regular dogmatics. I think Bonhoeffer is a practitioner of the other kind of dogmatics that Bonhoeffer talks about, or that Bart talks about, uh, mm-hmm. which is the irregular dogmatics. And to say it's irregular isn't to say it's sort of 
it's not to be valued as much as regular dogmatics. It's a it's a formal observation about the fact that lots of theological work gets done in, in a way that's one-sided, that's tactical, that's uh, occasional, um, that's not intending to sort of address the whole, but but is trying to pick up and to speak to the one thing that's pressing at the minute. And, and that's definitely the way that Bonhoeffer does theology. Um, you know, he's writing about topics that are he, he thinks are at the heart of, of what, whatever the present disputes of, of his sort of church and wider cultural context are. Um, he he's trying to write uh, into living de- debates uh, that are formative for Christian life in that context, um, and that means that he tends to, to focus on a handful of themes uh, almost mm. exclusively. Hmm. And he's never he, he 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 never gives himself the I don't know the kind of luxury uh, or to, he he doesn't exercise the kind of patience that someone who's working on a regular dogmatics might might exercise in trying to spill out and to to develop the kinds of consequences for other areas of Christian doctrine and their interrelation from the things he does. So, in a way, an essay like this one on God in the Handbook is an attempt to kind of do something that he himself could well have done, but just never did, uh, to synthesize some of the consequences for our thinking about God of the things that he did do in thinking about revelation, Christology, salvation, and so on. Wow, that's so great. Um, I do have a couple of questions for you. They're, they're tied to this chapter on God, uh, but they, as I was reading them, I was thinking about them and thinking about my own work, and I thought, well, <laughs> who better to ask than uh, the person who wrote this chapter I'm reading? Um, so my first question for you is, you mentioned in, in your paper, uh, or in, in your chapter, um, that Bonhoeffer's uh, understanding of reason is the uh, reason turned in upon itself. Um, and then I was thinking about that, but I was also thinking about, at the same time, I was writing about sort of the, uh, the simplicity in discipleship. Uh, so I was wondering, how, how does it work so that um, the re- reason and the self are always turned in on itself? And then uh, Bonhoeffer writes continually about the disciples' relationship to Jesus as one being continually outward instead and never looking back at the self. How do those work together? Is, is it the primaity, the revelation kind of changes the ability to be turned in on the self? Is, is there possible? I, I don't know how that works. So I, I figured, why, why not ask you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, so you're quite right that that's a, the, that motif of of understanding the human being in sin according to that Luther uh, notion of of the self, of the sinful self turned in upon itself, mm-hmm. sort of incurvatus in say as the phrase goes. That's a fundamental kind of commitment of Bonhoeffer. He finds that notion very compelling. He uses it all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, particularly in Acton Being, for instance, he extends it, he extends the consequences of that way of thinking to the way he understands the work of human reason as such. So one of the big worries that he's negotiating in that book is how can we come to know God without instrumentalizing God in the project of the self, right? Yep. And so uh, that that worry about the instrumentalization of God, um, sort of making God uh, a fixture in the furniture of our self-project or something, mm-hmm. um, he he can he motivates that concern precisely out of this this understanding that the self, even in its reasoning, so re- reasoning isn't sort of separated from the sinfulness of the self. Right. Reasoning is a is a sort of modality of sinfulness, 
right? If you can put it like that, mm-hmm. um, it's easy to kind of think about reason as if it's a kind of neutral faculty or something. Bonhoeffer's not having any of that, right? So reason is a way that the, the self that's willing itself, i.e., the sinful self, um, engages with the world, including with God. So uh, a lot of the work in active being is is to suggest that um, that Christian thinking about God needs discursive and intellectual strategies to resist the way in which the sinful self, through its reason, uh, wants to grab and to manipulate, as it were, to deploy God in the service of its own ends. Um, you see that again in the Christology lectures. Um, you mentioned uh, as we as we went by it, the that's section at, at the beginning about the, the logos and the counter logos, the way in which kind of human reasoning, the logos is encountered by its opposite, its, sort of, its antithesis, Bonhoeffer there uses this phrase, the counter logos, and that in that encounter, one of them must die. That's the way it's it. So not to be dramatic about it at all. <laughs> uh, so, the, the, and his thinking there is just so, right? That the, that the, the human reason, human logos, is, is a kind of closed shop, right? Um, and its interest in things that are outside it is always instrumental, right? Um, so the way he talks about, again, in the Christology lectures, the, 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 the famous distinction between the how and the what questions and the who question, his worry about the how and the what questions is that when, when human reasoning asks what is Jesus Christ and how is it possible that he could be the one who he is, um, one of the basic things that might be that might well be going on there is that those questions are ways in which human reasoning tries to get its hands around or sort of overreach Christ to incorporate Christ into the project of its own pre-understanding without that pre-understanding being changed right so I can make sense of Christ in terms that I brought to the table um, and having made sense of him in my sort of extant rational account of the world I'm done mm-hmm. I'm done um, so whether Christ is necessary or unnecessary in that context doesn't matter. In both cases, uh, the the more basic problem is that it's the self-disposing over Christ, uh, and reason has a role in that. So uh, both in acting being and in the Christology lecture is very strong accounts of the problematic character of human reasoning with with respect to divine revelation. Um, so how 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 to solve the problem? Well, you're quite right that. Um, that uh, Bonhoeffer thinks about revelation as salvation. So mm-hmm. that's, I think, the first thing to, to, to grasp, is that when, when Bonhoeffer talks about the knowledge of God, he's talking about this saving event um, uh, 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 by means of which uh, sinners who are turned in upon themselves are remade um, into human creatures who can and will now have have a God, the God of the Gospel, and have neighbors. Uh, and by neighbors, he means something like what Luther meant in a text like, I don't know, the, the Freedom of a Christian, for instance, mm-hmm. where um, it's exactly the overcoming, the justification of the sinner by grace alone, as Luther puts it in that text, means that the sinner now has no has no interest in the project of his or her own self anymore. Right? It's too late for that. God's seen to mm-hmm. the righteousness the, the propriety, the welfare of that hu- hu- human being. The freedom that comes from that, as Luther describes it, which I think Bonhoeffer takes up entirely, um, the freedom that comes from that acknowledgement, that grasping in faith of the work of divine mercy, is precisely to be open and turned outward, uh, both towards God in gratitude, thankfulness, and towards the neighbor 
um, in the freedom to do good works, right? So Luther has these lovely little phrases in the in in that text, the freedom of a Christian, where he talks about how now for the first time the justified sinner discovers that he has neighbors. Mm-hmm. Right? He, he he used to just have people who were part of the project of his own kind of self determination, right? But now he genuinely has neighbors, and his only interest now is not in how what they can do for him or how they fit in his own self-project, now his interest uh, in, the, in the neighbor is a genuine interest in what they need, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the need of the neighbor now becomes the only motivating interest that the Christian has, um, because the question of the self, as it were, has been displaced, right? Now that, that thought from Luther, I think Bonhoeffer has, you know, kind of uh, right down in, into the core of his, his own soul. So. He, he really does think about the predicament of the Christian life, uh, the predicament of the human being, sin, and its resolution in just those terms. And so the, the liberation of the, of the human being from sin by the encounter with divine self-revelation in Christ um, issues in a different kind of way of being a creature in the world that's no longer turned in upon itself and therefore, you know, deals with both God and neighbor instrumentally, but rather, and this is where that language of more than necessary might well come back and be useful again, encounters both God and the neighbor uh, according to the modality of grace and freedom, right? and therefore also love, right? Um, and so that, that tends to mean that he's interested in, in emphasizing the kind of, uh, like Luther, the kind of spontaneity of good works Right? The kind of uh, the language you picked up there from discipleship, the kind of uh, uh, simple obedience is the language that's that's deployed there to Christ's command. Right? Um, that the commandment of Christ to attend to the neighbor's needs um, uh, is is something which doesn't need to be argued about. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, I wonder if it applies in the circumstance. Well, it's kind of inconvenient today, I wonder if there's a modified version that's not so demanding, you know, all the things, the ways that that, that, that you can mitigate the, the freedom, or put it to put it in another way, all the ways in which you can truncate the radical Christian freedom you have to, to actually love your neighbors, there's all kinds of ways in which you can repudiate that. Bonhoeffer is interested with a concept like simple obedience in saying genuine Christian freedom is, is the freedom from all of those strategies of repudiation. Hmm. Right? Um, including the rational ones, right? All the ways in which we can rationalize away how the neighbor's need is actually not so important. It's not really de- as demanding as we, as we think it is. It's, you know, and so on, so on, so on, right? Or how it's inappropriate for us for all kinds of reasons we can canvas to attend to our neighbor's need. Hmm. Those kind of, Spawnoffer just wants that stuff out. Yeah. Right? So he's giving, he's, he's presenting in a text like Discipleship a kind of a radically purified account of, of what Christian freedom would look like. Hmm. Uh, and it does give the impression that it's kind of, it has a kind of irrationalist kind of core to it at times, precisely because we've, in getting there, we've had the closest association and reason with this sort of, uh, uh, the structures of the sinful self. Right? Mm-hmm. So the question, I suppose, on the other side of that is, what does redeemed reasoning look like? You know, what kind of deployment of rational, Faculties or human uh, uh, capacity for thought and reflection. Um, how how is that reshaped in the new creation uh, and deployed in the service of Christian love and freedom, rather rather than against it? Hmm. Um, there's I, I, 
think there's writing about that uh, in the the ethics, the account in discipleship, uh, is a sort of series of gestures at what that might look like too. Um, I think in part he he's hesitant to prescribe it because it doesn't have, it's not liable to prescription, right? It's liable to kind of description, but the actual exercise of Christian um, that kind of radical Christian freedom in the service of God and neighbor uh, is always going to be an exercise of just that freedom, and so never something which can be kind of prescribed in advance uh, to too firmly, you know, it, it can be mapped. You used to say the Decalogue and the Sermon on the Mount. They give you s- some sense of the space within which, um, as, bon- as Bonifer describes it, someplace the divine command will come and be heard. Um, but it doesn't. It doesn't preempt that moment of discernment or the 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 arrival of the command or the concreteness of Christian love and freedom. The, those things can't be prescripted in advance. So I, I think he's. He's limiting the things he wants to say about that space. He wants to point people into it. He wants to acknowledge its reality. He wants to give you some sense of its contours. But but he doesn't want to get ahead of, well, to get ahead of the spirit, as it were, or to get ahead of the, the concrete claim and, and gift of Christ in any particular circumstance. Um, Bonhoeffer is very much always a kind of concrete thinker, and he thinks... He thinks about the Christian life in concrete terms, and part of what that means is 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 that thought has to. Um, life will concretize itself. Thought can point to that concretization, um, but it can't generate it. Right? Mm. So thought always comes kind of late in the day, in a way. Right? Life tends to get us there first, and then we think. Um, I think Bonhoeffer has a little bit of that running sometimes as well too. His hesitation to say to casuistry as a mode of ethical thinking, mm-hmm. right, where we can calculate based on rules how we should act in a given situation. The fact that he's hesitant about that suggests that he, he tends to think that that's not the way, right? We don't reason our way into actions quite quite that mechanically. Right. There's something else going on there. Yeah. That's great. Wow. Thank you so much. That, that will be really helpful uh, for kind of working that out in my thesis. Um, okay. Well, last question for you. Um, we ask this of every... Uh, every guest, um, if you were trapped on a desert island and you were allowed to have one book by Bonhoeffer and one book about Bonhoeffer, just any secondary source, his life, theology, biography, anything, um, what two books would you bring? Right. That's a fun question. Um, so yeah, hard, hard to answer. Um, I, I suppose that as to the primary text, I would probably take, take his ethics, um, we talked a little bit at the beginning about the the sort of shock of the encounter with it at the beginning of my interest in Bonhoeffer. Um, I don't think that's ever gone away. I'm I I still find that text one of the most interesting texts to think with. Uh, and so yeah, I'd love to have a chance to. Well, not that I love to be stranded on on a, <laughs> a desert island, but if one were in that circumstance, being able to to, uh, to have that book to think with uh, as a puzzle and a provocation would be would be great. Um, I think in terms of secondary sources, yeah, that's hard to. Um, one thing, well, I might be excited to take with me um, a book by the fellow uh, about whom I wrote my PhD thesis, uh, Wolf Krutke. Um, Krutke, as you might know, was a East German theologian who uh, was one of the primary interpreters of, of Bonhoeffer, the, the Confessing Church legacy, and Bart uh, to the churches in the GDR during the communist period and thereafter. Um, my own 
doctoral work sort of on on him and the development of Protestant theology behind the Iron Curtain uh, was one of the things that really uh, hooked me in an interest to Bonhoeffer in the first place hmm. um, and, and has kept it live. He wrote an, a number of years ago a, a kind of collection of essays um, called something like, what's it called here? Barman Bart Bonhoeffer, um, Contributions to a Contemporary Christological the- Theology. Uh, there's a there's a, 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 a translation of some of the Bonhoeffer essays from that volume that John Burgess uh, from Pittsburgh Theological Seminary has just done with Baker Academic called Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Theologians of a Post-Christian World. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Kritka's writing on Bonhoeffer is really, really profound, and I find it very, very stimulating um, uh, and entirely trustworthy. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I'd love the chance to take the full the full German version of that book with me, um, in part so I could continue to kind of exercise my my German language um, uh, skills, but also t- to continue to be schooled by his, what I think is a very profound kind of reception of Bonhoeffer uh, by a theologian who whose experience of reading him in a church under extraordinary pressure for many, many years mm-hmm. uh, did generate uh, uh, some, some searching insights into what Bonhoeffer's legacy might mean for us. Wow. <laughs> That's great. Um, I, I have not read those, so I will... Uh... Specifically, I've seen the the new one, the theologians on a post Christian world, and it's been on the on the to read list. So, um, yeah, I'll get right on that. But I appreciate you uh, taking the time to do this and and just being so willing to yeah uh, speak about your chapter. Thank you for writing it. Um, indebted is to you for for your work. So uh, yeah, thank you so much. Not at all. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> Great. All right. Well, uh, that'll wrap us up. So thank you so much. I will talk to you later. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bonhoeffer Podcast, and thank you to Dr. Ziegler for coming on. You can find the Oxford Handbook of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which is published by Oxford University Press, wherever books are sold. If you like what you hear, please leave a review in your podcast app and it will help others find the show. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did, and as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.